by name Mr. David. I'm a South Sudanese by nationality. And here in Uganda, I'm a refugee. I'm uh, staying in Germany. We made our home here in the bush. There was no school. There was no health center. There was no any facility at all here. We mobilized ourselves to teach our children, but it was not working because there was no money to pay. In 2014, Rosemary came, and she got us when our children were learning under the tree. When Rosemary came, she managed to put up one block for two classes where we opened nursery school. The school is very near. The children are not traveling distant, and our children are feeding in the school. They don't have problem with hunger. Even the parents, the burden has been reduced from them. This school is really transforming the community a lot. Most of the things or the activities that are happening here, it is support from people who God has put peace into their hearts, and they have willingly opened up to support peace. I'm so glad when I heard that they're going to open a vocational school where after the class seven, those ones who cannot manage the secondary schools because we are handling vulnerable community, they at least have where they can go and get skills which will help them in the future. It's outstanding. The food, the books, the writing materials they are given to these children are quite different from the other schools. So I really appreciate those people. And I pray that God continue to bless them and touch more hearts to support them. I work with Peace as a coordinator for women. I do coordinating from the camp to Ajumani and from Ajumani to Nairobi. We are empowering women so that we don't depend on other people. Since I got the job working with peace, it has really changed my life. I never used to pray. Sometimes I used to give up in life mostly. But nowadays that we have Bible studies, I can go there every evening, I pray. And uh, me also working with peace, I'm the one now providing for my family. If you empower women, it's like you're empowering the whole world. Right now we have only 150 women that we are empowering, but there are more than 150 in this settlement. So I would believe that the other women can be also reached to be empowered to be a great work. For, uh, for the women. Such a joy to partner with Rosemary Kamadi and other people like her around the world. Uh, you know, we've been building relationship with Rosemary for almost 20 years. Um, that video does such a good job of showing the impact of the work that she's doing there. 
If you look closely, you saw some fellowship faces in that video. We had a team from here that was just there a few weeks ago. My wife was a part of that team. And one of the things she told me was she said, I had no idea how, what, what an incredible impact our church is having. People there know Fellowship Bible Church. They, they, yes, they know Rosemary, but they know, and Rosemary's talked about how important we are to her and the work that she's doing there. And I just thought, how amazing is it that here we are in Brentwood, Tennessee, most of us will never go there. We'll never be at that refugee camp in uh, Uganda, but we are there in a sense. God is working through us in that place. So I wanna encourage you, give generously to Global Christmas. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. This is the last you know, real Sunday that we'll have to emphasize it. We'll be here next Sunday for Christmas Eve. Um, giving goes you know, through the end of the year. It really continues past that. But our goal by the end of the year is a million dollars. And every dollar that is given goes out to those partners. We've got global partners, we've got local partners, and we have missionaries. If you wanna know about more where that money is going, the global magazine that was sent to you, uh, there's also some in the back if you didn't get one. You can also go to that website, fellowshipglobalchristmas.org. That's also where you can give your gift. Let's give generously. And by the way, if you've got kids, a parent or a grandparent, what a good opportunity to involve them in this, to talk to them about what these partners are doing, why we give, to talk about the idea that, hey, a little less under our tree, that's not what they wanna hear, by the way, but it goes so far. Allow them to experience some of the joy of what this is um, all about. And so uh, I can't encourage you enough. Don't delay on that. Go ahead and, and let's be giving to that uh, in this day and in this week. All right, in about... 90 seconds or two minutes, I'm gonna show you one more video, but this one has nothing to do with Global Christmas. It, it's an illustration that I wanna set up the message this morning. It's actually the, a, a video of my very favorite memory of Christmas as an adult. And I have that moment captured on video. It, it was the moment that we told our three daughters that we're getting them a puppy. Fair warning to parents in the room who have maybe kids with you. If they've been bugging you for a puppy, you want to leave now. You do not want to watch this video. <laughs> Our girls, so this was Christmas 2017, six years ago. Our girls were uh, 13 years old, 10 years old, seven years old. They had been begging us for a dog their entire lives, <laughs> which from my perspective doesn't seem that long, but for them it was forever. And they were wearing us down. Jody and I had this little trick we would do where, you know, we didn't want a dog. You know, we're not a pet family. And so every time they'd ask for a dog, we'd say, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons that dogs are a lot of trouble. And then we would just make stuff up like reason number 43, they'll pee on your bed. Okay. That one came true. <laughs> But, but we, had, we just like, talk, like threw numbers out of, the, out of the air. We'd be like, reason number 65, they blah, blah, blah. We'd say all these things, you know, kind of laughing, but, but also kind of serious. So we resisted year after year, but they slowly wore us down. And so it was six years ago, Christmas of 2017, that we finally said, this is going to be the day. Now, we couldn't get the dog on the day. It was, it was one of those, like we found it online and it was a certain breed that we wanted and it was in Ohio. And we we're going to have to go get the dog. And we weren't going to be able to get the dog by Christmas. It's just a puppy and it wasn't quite ready to be picked up. But we had a picture of the puppy. And we went ahead and, you know, made the down payment or whatever it was. And we, we printed out the picture and we said, you know, it was kind of poster size. And we said, how are we going to like do this in a special way? So I like games. I like to play games. I like to make games. And I decided I'm going to make a scavenger hunt for them. So I had clues all over the house. It led them all around. You know, they didn't know what the gift was. They knew it's got to be something magnificent to go to all this trouble for. 
So this is what you need to know to, to watch this video. The very last clue, we had them unscramble these, these letters kind of on the, the carpet of our bonus room. And, and it spelled the first half of a sentence. And the, the first half was, will you be my dot, dot, dot. The second half of the sentence, we, we like had letters that we put on the wall behind the screen of our projector in our bonus room. And so we were gonna, when they solved the, the riddle of the, the letters on the ground, we were gonna then raise the screen and it was gonna say, will you be my forever family, love your puppy. And it was gonna have this picture of the, of the puppy right there. So that's what you need to know. Here is the big reveal. Let's play the video. Will you be my? Ding, 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 ding. You put the microphone down now. The rest of the message will be revealed. Will you be my? This is really cool. Whoa. Forever family? Yes! Woo! Yeah. Will you be my forever family? This is awesome. Okay, I'm like, how does that have to do with it? No. No. What? Are you going to use the puppy? the poster and we got the puppy and that is Daisy and Daisy has been our dog for these six years now why did I show that besides the fact that I stinking love to watch that video <laughs> I'm, up, I'm up here like shedding tears okay it's like <laughs> I was thinking about Advent and I was thinking about how Advent has lost its joy for me in some ways. It's like the story gets familiar after a while. And I was thinking about good news is not meant to not hit you in a way that grabs you. And so I started thinking about this and I thought, why did my girls respond to the good news of the puppy like that? Because they wanted it so bad. Because they'd been waiting so long. A person's response to hearing good news corresponds to their level of desperation for the news. The greater the desperation, the greater the joy. With that in mind, let's turn to Isaiah chapter nine, which is an announcement of good news to a people who were desperate. This Christmas season, we've been talking about the gospel of Advent. That's been our series title. Gospel means good news. Advent means arrival, coming. So it's the good news of the arrival of Jesus. It's the good news that light has come to a people walking in darkness. 
And you've heard that phrase, you know, people walking in darkness, light has come. This morning, we're going to look at the exact text where that was first said, where that was first written, where that was first prophesied. Isaiah 9 is, is, is you know, one of the most important Christmas texts written 700 years before Jesus was actually born. It, it contains the words about light and darkness, but that's not all. It, it's the familiar refrain, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. Such recognizable words, but I wonder if you, like me, have sort of lost the, the, the grab of them. I wonder if the words still stir our heart, if the news could stir our heart again, like it's meant to. Maybe... It doesn't feel like good news to us as much because we've heard it so often. Maybe the news feels old. I also think there's kind of something going, something else kind of going on. I, I think we don't like to see ourselves as desperate and needy. And remember, the greater the desperation, the greater the joy when you hear the news. Uh, I think in our t- day and time, we do everything in our power not to feel the darkness. We can do a lot of things not to feel the darkness. We have, literally and figuratively, artificial light. It's not so bad. Life's okay. We don't really need rescue. It's pretty comfortable here. I wonder if this morning we might be able to hear the ancient words of Isaiah with a new measure of wonder and grace, a new measure of hope and gladness. I I think the only way that will happen is if we understand, yes, Jesus is the great light that's come into the world, and we still need the light, because we're in a world of darkness. I wonder if we could see that this morning. Our text in Isaiah chapter 9, as I mentioned, was written around 700 BC. Isaiah was prophesying at the beginning of the darkest age in Israel's history. In Isaiah's time, the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes in the north, and they were essentially wiped out. I mean, they never saw those tribes again. The the Assyrians just took them out. Isaiah was writing just after that happened. And then 150 years later, the Babylonian empire was going to come and they were going to conquer Jerusalem and they were going to desecrate the temple and they were going to burn Jerusalem and then exile the people in that period of time. And then the exile as well is the darkest days in the history of Israel. And into that context, those dark days, God sent the prophet Isaiah with a message of hope. Let's start in Isaiah 9, verse 1, and and not even the whole first verse. I just want to start with the first phrase. You'll see it on the screen. I encourage you to look in your Bibles as well. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So the start of the good news is there'll be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Before it's there'll be a child born. Before, you know, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here's the good news. There'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. anguish. Notice the first word. But it could also be translated nevertheless or in spite of. It's like in spite of the darkness, in spite of the gloom, there will be no gloom for her who was in this anguish. The, the therefore or the, the, the word but push, pushes us backward. It's, it, what's the context that this is happening in? I already shared with you the historic, historical context, but let's look at the last two verses of chapter 8. The, the, the preceding verses to this and you'll really get a picture of here of what Isaiah is talking about. Again, this is describing what's happening, but there's also where where they're going, the the prophecy for the years to come. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. 
and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Here is Isaiah's description of a people in a desperate situation, a people who need good news. They're distressed and they're hungry and they're angry with God about it. They're enraged, it says. So they they lift their faces upward to curse God. And that's what that, that means. Speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And then after they curse God, what do they do? They 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 look to the earth. Now why would they look to the earth? To try to find hope there, to try to find life there, to try to eke out some existence there. But behold, all they find is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and thick darkness. If you think about it, that's not just the condition of the Hebrew people in 700 BC, that's the human condition. Human beings live life in a broken world that makes us distressed and hungry in all kinds of ways. And that distress and that hunger that builds up in us over time. And, you know, some of us are, are more, we wear our emotions on the sleeve and others of us, we just sort of simmer and we boil and then we just kind of pop out at people. But what's going on underneath is disappointment. That life is not going the way I had thought it would, the way that I hoped it would, the way I think it should. And eventually, either overtly or covertly, we will, we will look up and curse God in a sense. And we do that in all kinds of ways by ignoring him by giving him the silent treatment, by sometimes rebelling against him or, or just kind of, you know, thumbing our nose at him, so to speak. And then what happens next is we, we then look to the earth. Like God's not my hope. God's not helping me. I'm gonna look to the earth. I'm gonna try to find hope there. But behold, all we find is distress and darkness. This is the gloom of anguish. This is the human condition, not just the Hebrew condition, that God sent Isaiah to speak the words of hope. And the words are, let's go now back to our text. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Let's continue now. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Do you see the connection now? It's interesting. He talks here about former time and latter time. So you've got a former time and then you have a latter time. The the former time is before Messiah came. Latter time, after Messiah came. Isn't it interesting that that's actually how we divide our calendars? You know, there's BC before Christ and AD, with not the politically correct terms anymore, but that's, that's the terms I'm gonna use. AD stands for a Latin phrase, in the year of our Lord. Before Christ, in the year of our Lord. The arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus divided history, a former time and a latter time. And, and Isaiah is talking about this. He, he's again writing hundreds of years before Jesus came. Notice though, he's using the past tense to even talk about the latter time. Did you pick up on that? He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Makes sense to us from our perspective because we look back at the first advent of Jesus. But from Isaiah's perspective and the original audience's perspective, all this was still to come. Why is he talking in the past tense? This is what scholars call the prophetic past tense. 
you find it all throughout prophecy. Oftentimes they would talk about things that had not happened yet in the past tense to convey it's as good as done. You can count on it. Bet your life on this. It's gonna happen. Now, Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, these are all regions mentioned in this text. They're all in the Northern Kingdom. They're all in the area that had just been wiped away by the Assyrians. It was now an occupied territory. That's why he calls it Galilee of the nations or other translations, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's no longer Hebrew territory. The promised land has been overrun. Don't miss, this is also the very same reason that Jesus would come from. The, the same region that he would come from. He would pull his disciples from the area around the Sea of Galilee. He did about two thirds or three fourths of his ministry and his miracles up around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Do you see the prophecy? He's gonna make the way glorious. People will be fed. People will be healed. Light will come. Life will come from that region that right now is so dark and right now is so desperate, you see. Look at the verse that comes next. He's talking now about God working through Messiah. You have multiplied the nation. The nation had just shrunk. It went from 12 tribes to two, but he's looking ahead. You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This was a time in Israel's history where there was not bountiful food. It, the land was no longer uh, overflowing with milk and honey. Uh, it was when they took it under Joshua's leadership and, and then un, under the early you know, years of, of, of King Saul and David and Solomon. But then they had a series of terrible kings, both the Northern and the Southern kingdom, with very few exceptions, had terrible kings. They did not rule well. They did not obey the covenant. And slowly the land, as is true also of the people, retracted away from God's intention for it. They did not give the land seasons of rest like they were commanded to. They overworked it. And now it was a season of famine. It was, it was a season where you would gather up the small amount of bread you had or the, the, the few olives or the, the few figs that you could get and, and you would split them up with your family so that no one would go to bed on a completely empty stomach. That's the time that these people were living in. And Isaiah is saying arrival of Messiah will, will, will be the kind of rejoicing that comes when a, a great harvest arrives after years of famine. There's more food than we know what to do with. It's that kind of joy. And you imagine what that sounds like to people who are hungry. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. He, he's, he's personalizing the nation now, the, his burden, his shoulder, his oppressor. You, God and Messiah, have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian was a reference to the, the battle that, that Gideon fought. If you remember the story of Gideon, he had gathered this big army and God said, that's too much, it's too many people. He made it smaller. And then he says, still too many people made it smaller. And so this little tiny little band of men went against this great army and God miraculously delivered them. And so what the, the prophecy is saying here is salvation will be yours, freedom will be yours, but it will be grace. It will be my work, not your work. As on the day of Midian, I will set you free of the burden. I will release you from the oppression. And then verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
nothing says Merry Christmas like Isaiah 9.5. <laughs> Actually, it's a beautiful verse if you think about it. Because what it's saying is there'll be a day when there's no more need for the instruments of war. There'll be a day, and, and Isaiah talks about this, you know, in a different place. And he says, you know, your, your weapons will be turned into tools for farming. And, and here he's saying the, the boots of the warriors and, and all the bloodstained garments, they're, they're going to be done with. They're, they're going to be burned in the fire. There'll be no more fear of violence. There'll be no more war. Can you imagine having no more fear of any kind? No more reason to build armies. No more reason to lock your door and, and protect yourself. So what we see in these verses, you know, ver verse one and two sort of announce the good news. No more gloom for those who are in anguish. And, and then the following verses just paint this picture using this rich imagery of harvest and, and using this idea of, of prisoners being set free and using the idea of the no more wars and, and we're gonna have a big bonfire and we're gonna burn all the weapons and we're gonna make a big circle and we're gonna sing and rejoice because all those times will be behind us. That's the first five verses. Verses six and seven give the reason for the hope. And it's surprising. It's not what the people would have imagined. For, in other words, therefore, here's the reason why all that will be true. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This doesn't sound unexpected to us because we know that's how the story went, but to them they would have thought, a baby? <laughs> a child? You're gonna give us a child? We need a little bit more than a child to deal with Assyria. We see in this text that the child will, will grow up to be a ruler. The, the imagery here, the government upon his shoulder, that, that's the, the image of the robe, the royal robe or the cloak, the mantle of leadership that the king would have. You know, he will be a ruler. And what kind of ruler will he be? That's where we get the names. Now, ancient culture, names described the character of the person. They, they weren't literal names usually to call someone by, not in this case. We know, we know from other prophecies, his name would be Jesus, Yeshua, which means salvation. But here he says his name shall be called, in other words, his character and his leadership and his rule will be characterized by these names. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's walk through these one by one. I'll just number them as we go. Wonderful counselor. Now, we, we have to move out of our context because in our context, if I told you I know a wonderful counselor, you're not thinking the right way. You're thinking, okay, he's talking about his therapist, you know? They didn't have that back then. Wonderful counselor didn't mean therapist. Wonderful counselor, well, counselor was the idea of a wise ruler, a, a, a strategist who, who's capable of leading. Wonderful was as close in Hebrew as you had to supernatural, the word supernatural, like beyond human ability. He will be wise beyond human ability. He will know exactly what you need and he will be able to lead you there. He will be able to, to, to put the pieces together in his rulership, in his kingdom. Think about what good news this is for people who had bad king after bad king after bad king. He'll be a supernaturally wise leader. His wisdom will even exceed that of Solomon. 
because it's supernatural. It's wonderful. Number two, mighty God. Wow. They weren't expecting Messiah to be God. Well, what does this mean? They must have thought. How, how, how could a child born be almighty God? And you and I hear that and we're like, oh, it's easy. It's the incarnation. You know, it's the baby, the baby Jesus, you know, blah, blah, blah. This was a new category for them. They knew because they said the Shema every morning, the Lord, our God is one God. There were only little hints of Trinity throughout the Old Testament, and this is one. So the child will be called God. And, and we'll see in progressive revelation how that actually plays out in fullness. Number three, everlasting father. The emphasis here is on the, the eternalness of this Messiah. Yes, he'll be born, but he won't be created when he's born. And he will die, we know, but he will not die when he dies. Jesus is everlasting, you see. Messiah, because he's God, is from beginning to end, Alpha and Omega. He'll be called Everlasting Father. Why Father? Why Father? I think the idea here is he will have a fatherly rule. You will lean on him for guidance and protection and provision. And he will be one with the Father, even though he is the Son. You see, all these things kind of coming together theologically, and, and we can see it better than they could. But this is amazing. And then the, the last one, we've already been singing about this. We'll sing about this even again before we leave. Prince of Peace. Of, of course, we've talked about this a number of times. The word peace is Hebrew shalom. It's the greeting that they greet each other with even today in the street. They'll say shalom, or sometimes they'll say it twice, shalom, shalom, peace, peace. It, it means far more than, than just the absence of conflict or no more wars. It means wholeness. It means everything put together rightly, internally and externally. It, it means flourishing. It means you're rightly related to other people and to your God and, and to yourself and, and even to the creation around you. It, it, it means you're, you're, you're living your fullest human self. That's shalom. Prince could also be translated another word as well. Yes, Prince is the son of a king, but, but Prince was, was also a, an administrator. Someone who, who, who made the government work and who, who, who put things into practice and put things into action. So, so you, you might translate Prince of Peace as administrator of wholeness. These are the titles that describe Messiah. These are the titles that, that give us an idea of who this one will be who will be born to us, a child and grow up to be a king and a ruler. Now the final verse of our text, which is the next verse, verse seven, paints a picture of what being ruled by this kind of king will be like. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I've always loved that last sentence. By the way, the Lord of hosts, that, that's the, 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 the commander of, of the angels, you know, the, the powerful 
angel army. That, that's the host, the heavenly host. That's what that always means. The, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the angels of heaven will do this. He's committed to it. Mark it down. He will not rest until it is done. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the big picture idea of the news from Isaiah chapter nine and these first seven verses, the, the, the big picture is this. The advent of Messiah, the, the coming arrival of, of Jesus, Messiah, is news that's so good and so big, it's like a great light coming into a world of darkness. It's people who've, who've only ever had their heads down, sinking deeper and deeper into the, the, the anguish of, of deep darkness, the light will shine. Their gaze will once again be lifted up. And then all these things will happen. They'll be able to feast. You know, they'll be released from prison. They'll, they'll be in this everlasting kingdom of wholeness and flourishing, you see. This is the gospel of Advent. This is the good news of the arrival of, of Jesus. And it's the good news the world has been waiting for. And here's where I'm wanting to go with this morning's message. It's also the good news we are still waiting for. We are living in the already not yet. When you really understand Isaiah chapter nine, you, you see that, that, that the freedom that's being prophesied. In a way, it has not yet come true for the Hebrew people, nor for us. Now, was the child born? Yes. Was the son given? Yes. But has the government been put on his shoulders? Not yet. Have we been living in this eternal kingdom where there's feasting and flourishing? Even Israel itself? Just look to the headlines right now. Already baby, not yet king, you see. This, this is, is what the, the already not yet is what Advent holds. And so this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how we can, can grab onto the news and, and, and make it less just nostalgic. And I love Christmas. It's such a sweet time. And I love the baby Jesus. And more future-oriented because we need hope now, maybe more than we have in a long, long time. The good news of the arrival of Jesus is only good news if you believe it applies to you. Another way to say that is it's only good news if you can find yourself in the story and the story starts in darkness. Anytime you study Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, you have to understand something and, and this, this is gonna help so much. It did for me anyway. When the prophets talked about the coming of Messiah, God had not yet revealed to them that that would happen not just once, but twice. That Jesus would come to be the sacrificial lamb, to bear the sins of the world. And then he would leave for a time and then come back to be the ruler that was prophesied. So what happens is from the point of view of the, of, of the prophets, they kind of just put both of those things together. And we hear things like a child will be born and he's going to rule forever. Let me show you an illustration of this. I've got these two candlesticks here. I'm going to light both of them using these candles uh, from our Advent wreath. And, and I want you to imagine that these represent the two advents of Jesus Christ. 
The one on my right is the one that we look backward in time to. This was Jesus born as a baby in Bethlehem. The one on my left is the one that we look forward to. This is Jesus returning as the king to make all things well. Now, again, the perspective of the prophets wasn't like this. Like you and I, we're, because we're in the middle, we can kind of look ahead we, or look back. We can look ahead and we kind of can differentiate them. The, the, the prophets, it, it was all in front of them. So, so their perspective was, was like this, you see. And I'll just kind of go around the room because I know we're all spread out. So this illustration doesn't work that well if you can't see it this way. So here's the perspective of the prophets. Here's the perspective of us, you see. We are in the middle of the prophecy. What does that mean? We're in it, you all. We're in the story. The ancient words are for us just as much as they're for the ancient Hebrew people. The purpose of the words is the same for us Christmas 2023 as they were BC 700 when they came from the mouth of Isaiah. What is the purpose of the words? To give us hope to point us ahead, to let us know this is not all there is. The darkness will become light. Now, traditionally, Advent talked about both. The, the season of Advent in the church calendar talked about both comings, both Advents of Jesus equally. You, you hear that in our carols. Joy to the world is a second Advent hymn. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And then if you read the rest of those lyrics, you realize, oh, these are things that haven't happened yet. Now, my point and where I want to go with this is that the Advent season should be just as much about anticipating the second Advent Christ as remembering and celebrating the first. And so although this has kind of been lost in the modern church, we need to bring it back. You're not going to have any help stepping outside the church. The, the secular view of the holiday season, you know, and they don't even call it Christmas anymore, but the secular view of that is, this is as good as it gets. Eat a lot, buy expensive presents, ask for anything you want. This is the time where the, 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 the spirit of Christmas is alive and everyone gathers around the hearth. And this is as good as it gets, so soak it in. That's, that's the secular message. The, the second secular message is, is, is look backward, you know, the nostalgia of Christmas, which I'm a big fan of, by the way. But what you won't hear is look forward. You, you won't hear look ahead. Advent has always been about look ahead, look forward. This is not as good as it will get. In fact, the more you understand the darkness that we're still living in, the more you will anticipate and hope for the light, the more you may shed tears at the news of the coming of Jesus. Here's an application you can put into practice right now, this week, Christmas 2023. Stop expecting everything to be right, right now. Stop expecting everything to be right, right now. Keep your hope future focused. That's the nature of hope. Like hope by nature is not about the past. It's not even about the present. Now, now it, it informs the present. It shapes our view, but hope is future oriented. Jesus has started his work. Hallelujah. But it's not done. There is a second advent. Dare I say a greater advent 
that is still to come. Uh, did you notice something in our text? None of the things of the prophecy that, that Isaiah spoke tangibly helped the people in 700 BC one little bit. In other words, he didn't give them food. He didn't say, hey, next month the famine's gonna be done and that happened. None of that happened in their lifetime. What it did do, and which was the purpose of the word of God in their lives, was to give them hope for what is to come to ignite in them a spark because everything had been going down, down, down. Do you see the connection for us, you all? Older people in the room are nodding their heads a little quicker than younger people in the room. I remember when I'm younger, I'm just like, Jesus, don't come back before I get married. <laughs> I remember that. Now I got teenage girls. I'm like, Jesus, please come back before I kill them. <laughs> Not always, certain days, certain days. They're, they're sweet, but... What I want you to see is that this text is about what God will do in the future. And it's for us just as much as them. We're in deep darkness. And yes, I, I, we have the light and we even have the light living in us. If you put your faith in Jesus, that's all true. But that doesn't change the fact that we're living in a land of deep darkness and, and, and even around us and, and to a certain degree still in us, right? The brokenness that's still alive and well in our sinful nature. Deep darkness. Maybe for you, you've never seen that as clearly as you are right now in this season. Maybe a combination of, of, of your health or the, the health of those you love or, or a suffering or a struggle that you've had this year or a loss this year. Maybe, maybe just looking around and, and, and looking around at the headlines and saying, where is all this going? This doesn't feel like it's going in any kind of good direction. Maybe all that's just kind of built up to a place that you'd say, yeah, yeah, I, I know that I'm living in darkness. We're living in darkness. I, I, do you feel the world is broken? The song goes, we do. And do you feel the darkness deepen? We do. As I've gotten older, this season of the year has taken on some additional heaviness for me. Part of that's just being a pastor. I don't know why, but it seems like November and December tend to be months where, where people die unexpectedly a little more often, or they, they get bad news of, of illnesses and things. Maybe that's just my perception because it's such a contrast with you know, the joy of Christmas. But this is a heavy time of year. Certainly the reality for so many of us is the losses that we have endured this year or previous years feel weightier this time of year. We miss our family and friends who can't be with us. We, we feel the longing of things that should be that are not. We long for what used to be, what could have been, while at the very same time we are thankful for what we have. It's both a season of rejoicing and it's a season of sighing. And I want to just give you permission to feel those things this year. I want to, if I can, give you permission to, to just say, yes, there's a first advent, praise God, but there's a second one he needs to complete. He needs to fulfill. Come, oh come, Emmanuel. Come, long expected, Jesus. Return soon. I think what we can learn this morning from Isaiah's prophecy is that the days of longing and sighing will come to an end. It's just a matter of when, not if. You and I will never cry tears of joy at the dawn of light if we don't first see how dark it is around us and even allow that darkness to, to get to us, to touch us, 
to create a contrast to the light of Jesus. We're, we're gonna do that a week from now in this room at our Christmas Eve service. We'll sing the carols, we'll be happy together, and then there'll be a point in the service where the lights are gonna go out and we're gonna feel the darkness. And then we'll light our candles and the room lights up. Why, why, do, we, why do we go to darkness? So we can better see the light. So we can better see the light of the world. I want to invite you to stand together and I'm going to invite the band to come back out. We're going to proclaim the gospel to each other before we leave. On the screen, there's going to be words of a liturgy from a book called Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey. These are words that we read the very first Sunday of our Advent series and we're going to read them again today kind of put bookends, if you will, on our time in the gospel of Advent. And these words speak to the already, not yet, the joy and the longing that is characterized by the Advent season. So I'll read the part of the leader. I want to encourage all of us together to read the part where it says all, and then we'll sing a song about all of this. As we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O oh God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feasts. By these small tokens, we affirm that something amazing has happened in time and space. That God on a particular night in a particular place so many years ago was born to us an infant king, our Prince of Peace. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our tree and as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with open arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our home, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so.